0: A weekend workshop, May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman.
0: Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Messages of Hope. I just love listening to that theme song. It gets me motivated every time. And my guest today is the perfect guest for giving all of us hope. William Peters, you may not have heard of him, but you will, because I want you to run out and get his new book. We're going to talk all about that today, but I want him to introduce himself. I always love that so much more than reading a biography to you. So, William, welcome to the show.
2: Suzanne, thanks for having me. Real pleasure to be here. Uh, You and
1: I were saying we met at an IANS conference, International Association of Near-Death Studies. So we're going to dive into that later as well. But how about just giving uh, the brief background? Yeah,
2: Yeah, so um, I'm a psychotherapist by training. Uh, I specialize in grief and bereavement. uh, And I help pretty much anything end of life is what I've been drawn to. And I've also, I was a hospice worker for many years. I worked at the Zen Hospice Project, uh, which is a very, you know, Buddhist oriented uh, way of dealing with death and dying, which I gravitated to because it's much more accepting of death as a natural part of life. Uh, so those are, those are kind of the key kind of training aspects of this, but what I really, um, how I got into the research was really my own experiences. I had two near-death experiences, and uh, I could go into them in a bit more detail, but really just to say that I had a high-speed skiing accident, was cattle oh, wait, wait.
1: Well, we're not going to slough over the near-death experiences. Uh, okay. Because that, I mean, we all love hearing those. Okay. So just give me a second, because the one thing I didn't say is that the whole focus today, as I mentioned your book, is on shared death experiences. And let me just, uh, for those of you who will be watching this later on video, I'm holding up a copy of the book. It's At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. I love that title. So before we hear about your near-death experiences, how about telling everybody what a shared death experience is?
2: Yeah. So a shared death experience occurs when somebody's dying and a caregiver, loved one, and sometimes even just a bystander will report that they shared in this journey with the dying from this human existence into a benevolent afterlife. And, and there's many, many features along that geography. Uh, but to, uh, for your listeners, the most important thing as a kind of a, an alignment way, a way of orienting, I should say, is that the shared death experience, is almost identical to a near-death experience in terms of phenomena. Uh, there are some differences, but generally they track very similarly. And this should not surprise us because this is the same terrain uh-huh. between this life and what lies beyond. In a near-death experience, which I've had two of, uh, it is you know it is a brush with death. You go over the threshold. You see the initial stages of the afterlife, and a and a lot of phenomena features, which, like I said, we can go into. The shared death experience is just uh, a person healthy in mind and body. And they are typically have a good bond, a close bond with the person dying. And for some reason, we don't really know yet, they are invited in to share in this journey and observe the same phenomena that they're experiencing. So these are these are veil-crossing phenomena-rich experiences.
1: And I love that you don't have to die to have that experience. Uh, we, we, I've had quite a few people who have had those near-death experiences, which are actually actual death experiences. They just come back from it. In fact, last week's guest, Tony Sicoria, oh. had that experience as well. But uh, I'm intrigued by. We'll get to this later. Just being a bystander, I just want to hear some examples of that. I don't. I didn't get to read the whole book. I read so many experiences that are shared in here which are just phenomenal but uh, we'll talk about that later but let's talk about yours how about the first near-death experience
2: yeah so 17 years old typical high school age young man went up skiing to Lake Tahoe California going down the mountain caught an edge flew into the air knew this was not a good thing I was in the in the air for too long and when I landed, I crushed my, my spine wow. and I was catapulted out of my body the, and it was dark for a little bit, which is kind of an interesting feature. Like I didn't feel or sense anything, although I haven't, I had an observing presence that was just looking at darkness and, and then all of a sudden the light started coming on. And the first thing I really noticed was that I could see my body on the slopes and I was moving very quickly away from my body. Uh, and I could see Lake Tahoe and then San Francisco Bay Area and uh, Colorado Rockies. Yeah, it was getting and eventually I had a satellite view uh, of everything. And it was all very peaceful. You know, uh, I
1: found that very interesting reading that account in your book, how you had this full earthly experience. You were pulling away from the earth instead of just dissolving into the light. You were literally pulling back from the stage.
2: Yeah, very well. Yeah, great point, because I was just. Yeah, being drawn out of this whole human existence, the whole earth plane. And soon I was in a beautiful galaxy, enamored, enthralled, no pain, but very much observing. And and and, and while my life, my life was getting reviewed at this time, I, I didn't really notice it was getting reviewed until I go, oh, wait a minute. This is, I'm seeing a movie of my life here. Oh boy. And then I was in this tunnel that was kind of ribbed and opaque. I could see a beautiful galaxy out beyond the tunnel, but, but the real moment of kind of awakening was when I saw the light and I realized, oh, I'm dying. And not only that, I've been here hundreds of times before. Like I knew exactly where I was. I was, I was upset because yeah.
1: Well, what I was going to say is I love that this was long before NDEs became so popular that most of us are familiar now with that tunnel. And yeah. you had that experience.
2: Yeah, this is 1979. And I, even though Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, uh, you know, which really introduced the near-death experience to the world in a certain way, uh, that was 1975. But I, not, my culture, I had no exposure to this. Yeah. So, so when I did see the light and I immediately I started pleading with the light, I grew up Catholic. So I was I, I, I when I saw the light, I just said, God, I'm not ready to die. I mean, I was just so honest. God, I am not ready to die. And I started having a conversation. It was really me talking, and I wasn't getting a whole lot from God. He was, he, she, it, they was just there. And I went into the light, and it was, you know, divine. It was, I, it was the best feelings I've ever felt. And yet, unlike most near-death experiencers, I still didn't did not want to stay. I wanted yeah, to. Go that back. is unusual. Very, very unusual. And I, and I had this sense, I have to go do something. I did not achieve what I went into this life to do. Not that I knew what that was, yeah. but I was pleading to go back. I also had this sense of, it was kind of interesting. I didn't want to go through my childhood again. Like I was like, I, like, I want to go back. I've made it this far. Let me go. Uh, and, and I came back, uh, you know, spun back into my body. I remember I was coming back. I was like, How am I going to get back in my body? Like, how how am I going to find how am I going to find planet Earth? I was just like, but I was zinging back like gravitationally. Then I realized, oh, there's some sort of guidance here. I'm just going to let go. And then eventually I was back in my body uh, and it was a boom back in my body. And I felt the cold of the snow on my back. I felt the pain in my back. And I didn't have any, I didn't, but I didn't have any sensation in my extremities. And I remember screaming inside my head, God, don't let me be paralyzed. Oh yeah. And, and I felt the, the sensation come back into my extremities, like being under a warm shower, you feel that energy move across your body. Um, so it came back and I, and I had, if I were to do that again, which I hope I'm not, uh, I would have said, and don't let me live with, uh, severe chronic limited uh, debilitating pain because for the next four decades, I really struggled with back pain and walking and, and, and some severe limitations. So, wow.
1: And how did you overcome that just briefly? Cause it gets us off track, but.
2: Well, I mean, I really became a spiritual practitioner. I mean, I went really dove into uh, Eastern meditation practices Primarily because it allowed me to sense deeply into my body and, and sensations, and I think also leave my body, <laughs> kind of oh, both yeah. of that. So I got a sense of, a, of a, a self that was bigger than, more expansive than the pain of my body. So, so it was kind of interesting. I was working both ends of that continuum, feeling more into the pain, but going through it and realizing I'm more than that pain. Uh, And then the gift of all this uh, physical pain has been that I've, I've developed these wonderful practices that I think later really helped me have these shared death experiences, because when I'm with the dying, it's really about attuning. It's really about being with them and and allowing yourself to go with them where they're going. Uh, That's a whole nother topic we can get into, but I, yeah,
1: Yeah, because you're not just (laughs) writing about them. It sounds like you're, you've, you're preparing yourself to do it and have done it with others.
2: Exactly. I know yeah. you did with
1: your, you had an amazing experience with your dad at the end of his life, if not a shared death experience. And I definitely want to talk about that. It really sure. touched me reading that in your book. But how about the second NDE? Is this an appropriate time to talk about it or does yeah. that come later in
2: your story? Well, let's do something. Let's, there's one other, uh, chapter piece, it's very important for the evolution of the understanding of the SDE. And that is, I went to South and Central America, really, because I had been so transformed by my NDE that the world I lived in didn't make sense to me anymore. All of my programming about going out and getting a profession and, you know, making money and getting a big house, a lovely family, no criticism of that. It was just something that for me, the level of pain I was dealing with just didn't add up, and and so I, I you know I decided I wanted to be with people who were underprivileged and suffering, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but as I look back retrospectively, I realized they had something to teach me, and I wanted to, and I just followed that intuition. So I found myself uh, working actually with the Jesuit International Volunteers, a liberal arm of the Catholic Church working with refugees and teaching in their schools. And it was started in Belize and then went to Guatemala and then went to Peru. The latter two had civil wars going on. So this was really tough uh, work, but very meaningful. And I was able to work with indigenous people, uh, primarily refugees from the wars in Peru and learned a bit about shamanism, uh, that worldview, which was, which I was just so open to because when I'd hear the stories I think unconsciously, I never linked them directly to my near-death experience that I can remember, but I think I was like, oh, traveling through the universe, oh, um, seeing different dimensions, oh, the light, oh, I think it all just kind of fit, even though I didn't, the lights didn't go on like this is my near-death experience, not that I can remember, but the point being is it was comforting to me and I learned so much from being in these cultures with these people. I came back and I got a position as a social worker in San Francisco and the AIDS epidemic broke out. And I was a frontline direct service social worker in what we call the tenderloin of San Francisco, the skid row part. And a lot of, you know, a lot, I mean, thousands of gay men were uh, primarily impoverished, wiped out by their experience of the virus and had to. Uh, moved to the poor part of San Francisco. And I ended up working with a lot of these people and communities. And I heard stories uh, from the men who would, you know, one in particular, I shared in the book, but I'll do it briefly now. And that is, I was very close to uh, this gentleman, Brad, close in the way that it was a client relationship that he would come in and he would get food for his community, We get counseling for what he was dealing with. And he was kind of what we'd call a psychopomp. He was helping people cross over at the end of life. That's a Greek term for, you know, psychopomp means somebody who helps people die and takes them from this life into the next. Or so, a doula, right? Yeah, a doula. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A, perfect. Yes, yeah, so a modern day doula. And so he came to me one morning and said, um, my shed, he walked in the door. He didn't say anything. I looked at him. I said, Brad, you look what happened? You just look, you know, beleaguered. He goes, Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. Uh, I didn't get a chance to groom myself, but uh, Randy died last night. I go, Randy died. Oh, I'm so sorry. He says, yeah. He says, it's sad, but it was so beautiful. And I said, beautiful. Tell me, well, he tells this story of his community gathered around Brad excuse me, Brad's community gathered around Randy's bed. And at the moment of death, they, they saw a cylinder of light coming down. And he says, Brad, excuse me, Brad said, Randy traveled up this light. And when he got just to the top of the light where we could you know, still see him, he looked down at us. And he thanked all of us. And he's thank you for caring for me. And what we noticed was that he was younger, he was healed, he was vibrant, he was healthy, and he was happy. And then he went up further into the light and disappeared. Well, when I heard that, I mean, he was looking at me like, do you believe me, William? Yeah. And, I, and I, said, I said, yes, that makes sense to me. And I just said it like that. He, goes, he looked at me, he goes, it makes sense. to you. He goes, whoa. And that's when I made a connection. I had some, something similar to this at, at one point in my life. And so for me, I was very in, inherently open based on my experience.
1: No accidents there.
2: No accidents. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. accidents. Yeah. And so I would, I would work with uh, Brad and others. I became somewhat known as uh, someone who was very open to these spiritual experiences uh, that were happening all over this part of town because so many people were dying Uh, really gruesome deaths of the early days of AIDS. So I share that because uh, there's my real first introduction to these shared death experiences. No name, no nothing really other than I believe you make sense. And I started hearing more about them.
1: I have to Uh interrupt you a second as I look at the book cover at Heaven's Door and there's this Very narrow, but this light that goes right down the middle. At first, I thought this is a publisher's mark that says this is a sample book, you know, because it came straight from the publisher for the radio show. And then I said, no, it's not. That's the light that connects us to the heavens. That's right. Very clever cover. Yes. Yeah.
2: So second NDE. um, About how I was 30 years old. So a few years after I was working in San Francisco, I contracted a rare blood disease, idiopathic thrombocytopenia, And that means it's a hemophiliac condition. I was, I was drowning in my blood. I went into, I went into the ER, they put a, an alert on me and I woke up about, I don't know, six to eight hours later. And I was hovering above the ICU at Kaiser Uh Oakland hospital. At this point, from what I can remember, I don't have any sense of an identity of being William or anything. I was just in this ICU, listening to the nurses, listening to the custodial staff, kind of just curious, content, happy, but definitely an observing consciousness. I mean, but no identity, no, no William there. Until, wow. until the nurses, I listened to the nurses go through the various patients in the ICU, and they defined, uh, described this guy, who was 30 years old, young and healthy, no real history for being in this part of the hospital. And they were perplexed by him. And so I go, that's interesting. I'll take a look at him. So I moved my little consciousness across the ceiling. Then I looked down and I saw my face in the bed. I said, wow. Oh my gosh, that's me. Okay. And, and I made the connection. And there's a little more to the story if you're interested it's in the book, but the basic idea was I then I realized, oh my gosh, I am not my physical body. Well,
1: yeah, but I, the nurses at this point must have been totally freaking out because clearly you're not in
2: the body anymore, you're the soul well they I don't think they even they just saw' my, they just saw' I don't know what they saw, but Maybe I mean they I was, thought
1: you were still sleeping or something yeah,
2: they thought I was totally sleeping I did not I was out from what I could tell I mean, I didn't honestly. Suzanne, I didn't even spend much time looking at that body. I mean, I looked at the body, something hmm, that's interesting. And then I, I said, well, that's me down there. And then I went into my own consciousness and moved. I said, this is interesting. I'm up here. And I moved down the hallway and I started exploring. But, it was, but the
1: point you made when I rudely interrupted you there you was know, huge that you had this realization. I am not my body. That's right. Yeah,
2: that right. And And then at this point, some time later, it always takes a while to process and integrate these because I'm still not talking about these experiences with anybody. I just, I, I don't remember sharing them with people. And And you
1: just found yourself back in your body. All of a sudden that was it.
2: Okay. This is a great question. So, um, the doctor walks in, I still remember his name, but I won't say it from UCSF. And he announces, he goes, I am so-and-so I'm a specialist in uh idiopathic thrombocytopenia, which you have it's a very rare blood disease and and then he said uh, mr peters mr peters he kind of said that first then he introduced himself mr peters and he was tapping on me and i'm looking up at above and i'm going do i want to go into that body like if i answer him what will all these questions about well i'm up here do i can i answer him from up here what will happen if i Can I even answer him? If I talk, will he hear me? All these questions were going through my mind. And eventually I just said, well, I'll I'll answer him. And then, and as he's tapping on me, Mr. Peters, Mr. Peters. And then as I say, yes, it was, I was kind of a slow yes. As I went back into that dimension, it was kind of like, yes. And as I did that, I could feel the energy come back over my body like that shower experience, the warm water coming through and filling out me energetically. And then as I opened my eyes, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm looking at this world again through my physical body, which was so different than just moments before, because I was seeing this doctor and my body from above. And now I'm looking up at them and it's just a different view.
1: Have you been able to pop out on your own?
2: Well, yeah, I think I think, you know, the response that there's my answer to that. So um, the there is definitely um, now that I've had these experiences, unless I was always, you know, capable of this, which I don't think I I can go and be with people uh, who are dying yeah. and my Otherwise
1: known as an out of body experience to go visit them. Yeah,
2: it, exactly. Mm-hmm. So. So let me go to this nest experience because I think this will really answer your question with with a great example. So I joined Zen Hospice Project, as I mentioned, and I really joined it because I was fascinated by death and dying at this point. And I had the opportunity to spend many hours a day as a volunteer just sitting at the bedsides of people who are dying. On this one afternoon, I was reading to Ron. Now, Ron had been uh, unresponsive. That means he was not communicative at all, kind of in a comatose state. He'd been that way for a number of days, but I knew him beforehand and I had been reading him a story out of a book. I still remember the the book. It was uh, Jack London's Call of the Wild. And he loved it. It was an adventure story. So I'm reading to him one afternoon, like any other afternoon, and all of a sudden I pop out of my body. Uh Uh-huh. And I am suspended above my body and Ron's body that's prone. I am looking at my body down below. I'm seeing the crown of my head. I'm seeing the words on the on the page. I can't decipher them. I can even see my, my voice speaking. I don't know if I can actually hear what I'm saying. I'm not focused on that. But Ron is right to my right in spirit. But now Fair, he's not. Yeah. But wow. he's, I say he's in spirit only because he's not in his body. He yeah. looked fully like a human face. I didn't see anything more than his beautiful face, wow. eyes wide open, smiling, radiant smile, teeth white, as if to say to me, check this out. Oh, check this out. And I course- have
1: a Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. Suddenly, so like, his face is just right there. Exactly. Wow. Wow.
2: And so that was, as you said already, that's an out-of-body experience. And in the shared death experience uh, language that we use, that's a co-experienced OBE, co-experienced out-of-body experience. So we're doing it together. He's out of yeah. his body, I'm out of my body. And this points to this to the response to your question, do I easily go out of my body? And the truth of the matter is, I do. Uh-huh. Uh, and if I'm with people who are dying, I will very easily go to different realms, different dimensions. I think I have a very loose, uh, or a looser connection to my physical body.
1: And to what do you attribute that I, I think, hear people right now listening and they're saying, I want to do that. And that, they have big books on it and I've practiced yeah. and I still don't get to that point.
2: Well, well, I think it's because I was catapulted out of my yeah. body initially. And I think, you know, I just have, um, shall we say, porousness in yeah. that relationship of embodiment. I think I was, forced out of it and i think you know and that it's never really um sealed up in a way that would make it it's just permeable for me yeah
1: that and, feels and I, right I,
2: yeah and i like that permeability but also it, it has some downfalls with it um you know in other words i can feel things and and be pulled out of myself in ways that i wish i could stay at home sometimes more um like you know i i things are going on around me if i'm in a tra- trauma situation and i can feel the pull i can feel my body you know my soul spirit whatever kind of wanting to go out or just being wow. drawn out
1: kind of and, like people who have epilepsy who know that a, a seizure is coming on you can tell when you're about to separate isn't that separate your consciousness
2: yeah yeah i feel i actually feel a gravitational pull on my uh, my soul. Well, I feel like there's an energetic soul chest. You know, I feel like there's something really big going on here. I'm trying to get up higher so you can see, but um, and
1: yet, and we're just about out of time. We have to go to a break. And but yeah. yet, your body is still functioning, so there is still a connection. You can't completely leave the body if
2: you're no, if you're having, no. I yeah. even when I leave my body, I still when I come back, everything's kind of the still here. Um, okay. I don't know what happens when I leave. Uh, it, always, and it And when, it's not these pure out-of-body experiences. That's one thing, it's like, OBEs, they're not all alike. I mean, you go to different dimensions. And so I think- and we so- have
1: to go to a break, unfortunately, <laughs> William. Okay. So everybody, when we come back, we're really gonna focus more on the shared death experience. That's our little alarm going off, so I didn't uh, miss the break. But we'll be right back after the break for more with William Peters, author of At Heaven's
0: Door. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Practical Spirituality. Positive Messages. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org. The Voice of an Awakening World.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. All right. Welcome back. That break was uh, just right to allow us to shift more in our focus here in our conversation. We've been talking about William Peters near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. So NDE's and OOB's. But now let's talk about SDE's, the shared death experience. Your book is full of what I call NOE's no other explanation <laughs> stories. Yeah. So you've had these own, your own experiences. Tell us how you became an expert in this field. Yeah.
2: So when I was at hospice volunteering, I would have many of these experiences. I shared one already that I had with Ron. But what's important to note is that The Zen Hospice Project, who I I loved the organization and my supervisor, Eric, was just a veteran, open-hearted man. But when I would share, when I shared one of these experiences with him, this one with Ron, I remember being excited saying, hey, I was just felt like I was out of my body with Ron over there. And Eric's a great guy. And he says, you know, oh, halfway between heaven and hell. Uh, you know, all sorts of things can happen here, William, it's just phenomena, you know, let it go. You know, Mary, Mary needs you over there on bed three. And (laughs) and I was like, Oh, well, okay. And that's very Buddhist, by the way, you know, you let go of your experiences, you don't hold on to anything, non-attachment, don't get ego attached anyway. So, but, but I was um, disappointed that I didn't have a chance to dialogue. And more than that, that nobody really that knew about it. Like if Eric didn't know about this experience, I knew that the entire hospice field was not engaging with this because he was just three decades of doing this work and very spiritual man. So, so no fault of Eric. The fact of the matter is the field had not identified this experience. And, and so I had had more of these experiences while I was working at bedside. I wouldn't share them with anybody. And then by this time, I knew it was more related. To, I was closely re- aligned to my NDE, but I could see very little literature about it. I mean, I heard some experiences when I did my lit reviews and literature reviews, but nobody really put a name on this. They called it apparitions, at-death apparitions, that type of thing. Oh, visitations. I mean, there's all sorts of things, but no one really got this experience until I went to go listen to Raymond Moody in 2009. And Raymond was, I thought Raymond was going to talk about the near death experience, but he says, Hey, I'm going to talk about another experience that's very closely related to the near death experience. It's the shared death experience. And then he describes the shared death experience as I've already defined. And when I heard him talk about it, my whole body lit up and said, yeah, oh the my goosebumps gosh. again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Goosebumps. And I, and I went up to him and I said, I not only have I had, a lot of these, as a hospice worker,s I, as a hospice worker, I think I know how to help people have these. And he looked at me and he said, "Wow, we don't even know how they happen." I said, "Well, has is anyone doing research on it?" He goes, "No." And I said right then, I said, "Well, I will." And that's when I began my formulating my ideas for starting the Shared Crossing Project with the intention of raising awareness and educating people about these profound and healing end of life experiences that include primarily the shared death experience, but others, we study others as well. But this is the primary one that I got focused on. And it was with the goal of transforming people's relationship to end of life and allowing them to have these experiences, quite frankly, so that they knew who they truly were. That's what I was really, the freedom as you well know, Suzanne, comes in knowing who we truly are
1: goosebumps again that's that word freedom that is what this is all about yeah freedom from the suffering your book right here which teaches us about dying well we don't talk about death and and i love that it grabs your attention and you say dying well you mean i don't have to be afraid yes yeah
2: yeah oh and so just just because you said that that term being afraid the probably most common after effect of a shared death experience for the experiencer is I any fear or anxiety I had about death is gone. Now I'm curious. Now I'm excited. Now I'm receptive. And now a lot of people say, I I just find it's the most wondrous event. I don't want to die, but I certainly want to get to know about it, prepare for it and talk about this with my loved ones. So G- the shared death experience is highly transformative for experiencers. And the other piece that's so important about this, Suzanne, is they come back. The experiencers come back from these profound experiences, often at the deathbed. But as I'll say, two thirds of these experiences happen remotely. So you don't even have to be at a bedside, right. which, is, which is stunning. And a big surprise in the literature from our, when I started presenting this research, people were like, what? I said, no, these, this is also another point for you know, non-local consciousness this, yeah. and how we're connected across time and space. And you know so once again, that's a whole nother beautiful rabbit hole we can go down. But the point is that the experiencers will say that I know that my loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. And I know that I'll see them again. Those statements right there, when you talk about how that impacts grief, I'm a psychotherapist specializing in grief and bereavement. One of my main reasons for get, writing this book and getting it out to the world is so people can realize if you can embrace these as a possibility, even then you will have a much different grief and bereavement process. So there will oh, yeah, be so yeah. much more meaningful. You know, you're always going to have pain around the loss of someone you love. But as you said already, Suzanne, our culture is so out of relationship with death that once you go through it, not only are you pushed to the margins of society, you become a a pariah like, oh, I can't talk to, you know, Suzanne, someone just died in her family. You know, it's like, what? No, we need to bring that person into the middle of our family, into the middle of our community, give them center stage and say, what do you need? And can you tell us how this was for you? you know if they're willing to talk because if you if they've had an experience the first thing they're going to say is well this is what i experienced and if we can receive them and just make space and like you said you know there's already you know helping parents heal as a great organization as we know that's doing just this in grief and bereavement so right. i'm not i don't want to say that it's not being done i just say that you know elizabeth Boisson and others who are bringing this wisdom into the world we need more of it Because it's so healing and so transformative.
1: It is transformative. I remember recording my radio show because I had to, it was live from another room in the hospice where my mother was transitioning. She was going through the process just down the hall and it was a sad time, but it's that knowing that we have that she's going to go through this beautiful journey. I can't stop her at 92 years old. The body's done, but it just transforms that from when I was in that same hospice with my dad Ten years earlier, and just coming to know what we know. I love how you said that most of those who, if not all of those who share their SDES, are of sound mind and body. So right away, people can't say, "Well, they're just crazy. They're just you know."
2: Yes, yes. This was a this was a big uh, step forward in the kind of the healthcare providers and consciousness community because. The near-death experience, as you know, has often been maligned as being a fear-death experience, a change in trauma-causing biochemical reactions in the brain. Yet the SDE happens in the minds and bodies of healthy people, unknowingly encountering these experiences, and it's the same as the NDE. So there, so you can't discount it. So you. No.
1: So how about then since everybody who follows my work knows that I'm evidence-based medium, I, I need those verifiable things. How about sharing with us a story or two of people of sound mind and body who had an SDE with something evidential in it?
2: Oh, that's a good one. Oh, so I'll give you one here. So this is, all right. So, um, Sonia, Sonia is in Massachusetts and her good friend, Denny, is dying in uh, Santa Barbara, California. She doesn't know she's dying, but she, ah. and the reason why is, Denny actually used the uh, medical aid in dying because she had a very, very severe um, cancer that was painful for her. So, but Sonia didn't know this. So, Sonia describes getting super tired early a uh, Friday evening, falling asleep, and waking up and finding herself with Denny at a river, uh, side of a river, and they're beginning a journey. So the one thing that I would really want your listeners to know is the dominant motif in the shared death experience is journey. You're always progressing, and you're progressing towards the light. Whether you see the light or not, eventually you will, and that's the movement. So what what Sonia describes is this journey with Denny, up, you know, across rivers, uh, up ladders, uh, all over different trains, other people with them. And all of a sudden, they arrive at this party, this welcoming party. And, but they're early and they go in, and there's dancers that are supposed to be there. Denny was a dancer in her life. Uh, but there's, but, but, but Sonia didn't know this, but there's this big dancer party coming, and food's going to be served. Well, they, so there's
1: a little bit of evidence right there—the dancing thing. A you know, little I bit of
2: evidence way. right there that Sonia didn't. Well, I knew Denny liked dancing, but I didn't know she was a like a like a ballerina of of you know when she was younger. Now, Denny, of course, is in her seventies here, late seventies. So, um, Sonia's not familiar with her whole previous life. So, what then happens is Sonia realizes that as they're serving the food and the people are welcoming her. Sonia realizes, oh, my gosh, this is a party for Denny. And I'm really I'm here, but I'm really not supposed to be here. Uh And 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 she then she wakes up in her bed and it's in the middle of the night. And she's she's sweating and she's crying. And her husband says to her, what's going on? She goes, Denny just died. But but she goes, what do you mean? Denny's in Santa Barbara. She's you know, we know she has cancer, but you you don't receive anything about her. She goes, no. I know she just died. I was just with her. And her husband says, well, come on now. The next day, Sonia gets up and she gets on Facebook and realizes that Denny had died the day before. What's interesting, another evidential piece, which may seem seem minor, but not to me as a researcher, is that Sonia describes vividly what Denny had on as a dress in that journey with her. And Mm -hmm. Denny was always very meticulous about the way she dressed. She cared very much about her. She was a very regal woman. And so dress was important to her. She had on this dress, Sonia says, that was very unique. She hadn't really ever seen this in a certain way. It was a distinct color with a print. A month later, she gets a catalog in the mail and she opens it up and she goes, that's Denny's dress I've never seen it before anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so for Sonia, she says, This is for me. Like this is absolute. And she looks at the catalog. She don't even get this catalog. So so it's like, oh my gosh. So for her, it may for me, I'm like, you know, I study synchronicities a lot and see, yep, you know, yep. and after a while it's the web. It's the web. So <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is part of the web. Does that stand in and of itself as evidence? No, but when you put a number of these features together, um, even this, even this thing, this piece about Denny arriving early to the party, like they weren't well, they weren't really ready for her. That also speaks to the fact that she, Denny did oh. choose; she did choose to end her life with medical aid and medical assistance early. Wow. So that's a powerful piece too. Like, and Sonia picked it up. Sonia's like, "Wait a minute." maybe I was allowed to be here because we got here early and I just kind of went in with Danny and they weren't even like, I got through the door before they even let me knew I was here with her. And there's all these very interesting things in the spirit realm, um, which I know, you know, Suzanne, this is really your area of expertise. So I'm going to be careful, but say from my vantage point, I see these very interesting data points in, 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 in testimony from people that suggest There is a plan, there is this force that's conducting um, our transition from the human body into the spirit realm. It is far more organized than we give credence to. And quite frankly, it's awe-inspiring and beautiful about all these people on the other side, call them people, they look like people, they're spirit beings. Well, how about
1: talking talking for a minute? I would agree with everything you've said there, William. How about strictly from experience, personal experience, how about the, the, this one figure or being that is common, not the same one, but you've, uh-huh. but a role that you've given uh-huh. a name to?:
2: Thank you. Um, the conductor. Yeah. So if there's anything, I feel myself gets uh, I get such a huge smile when I get a chance to talk about the conductor, because I noticed in these in, in reviewing accounts and listening to so many people over the years, I remember my clinical practice, somebody coming in and first sharing, well, I was with my mother and, and he wasn't at bedside, actually. He was remote. He goes, but what was so interesting is there was this presence that I could kind of see, but kind of not that was coaxing um, my mother's spirit out of her body, like trying to like coordinating this transition and this this being was so focused and I was watching this. Like I was a witness to this and I'm not even sure anyone knew I was there, but here I am. I break into the scene. I knew my mother was on hospice. I didn't know she was dying, but here I am. I'm here and I'm watching this. And, and then all of a sudden I see my mother's spirit, you know, kind of pulled out of her body peacefully. And then this being is gathering, holding my mother And then they start going upwards supported by the conductor and they disappeared. They went into this light in the distance. Well, when I heard this at first, I didn't know how to make sense of it. I said, that's really interesting. But then I started seeing this force over and over again in different ways. Sometimes it's a, it's a spirit being. It's like a big ominous angel that has wings. Even one case, with this woman, Angela talks about being but at the depth. not
1: ominous in a scary way, right? Just
2: powerful. Good point. Sometimes at first, the force, the, the conductor can look ominous. But then if you, it, and one of the reasons it can be ominous is because it has such a mission to do its work. It's very focused. It's very clear. The work, I dare say, even looks a bit serious sometimes. Like they're really working with the schedule. It's like there's a lot of things they're trying to put together. But as you watch the process, generally, uh, almost all the time, it becomes one of love and care and compassion. So it's not to be feared. I think we just need to have awareness that if you ever find yourself in this space and you see this being who's conducting things and they're serious and they're focused, um, then then you just know you're working with what I call the conductor. This is the, the facilitator, the one in charge of, of making this transition happen. Um, now I will say to be really clear, most of the cases you see beautiful beams of light. There's a there's a few cases. In fact, if your go viewers on, are if your viewers are interested, yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to hear about what you wrote about your father's passing. Oh, yeah, that yeah.
2: was amazing.
1: You yeah, you but, would have think you're a medium in your own right because you really had a mediumistic experience.
2: I did. But I just want to say, just to encourage your listeners, if they go to sharecrossing.com and go to our story library, go to Amelia. And John, uh, those are two cases. They're both have the conductor in them in different forms. Amelia has this beautiful lady. She goes, that lady is so beautiful, so beautiful. And what, what this beautiful woman does, the spirit being of light does is really assumes, takes Amelia's 13 year old son. Who's dying of cancer and takes him into the afterlife. It's beautiful. So, um, All right. My father. So here I am with my father and I'm thinking my mother is uh, at at the actually in my in in my father's hospital bed, holding him, supporting him. And my sister's there at this time as well. And as I'm uh, what I do when I'm with the dying is I breathe with them. I pray with them. I give myself over to whatever they need and just ask to be of assistance and that's, and just open myself. And as I was doing that, I closed my eyes and all of a sudden I found myself in this other dimension. And in this dimension was very close. Like I could still feel myself in my body, but I could see at the foot of my bed at the foot of my father's bed. It wasn't my bed, father's bed. I saw my grandmother. I saw my aunt And they were right next to each other. And they were dressed in old Irish attire, which would have been significant for my grandmother because she was, um, you know, she was, I think, first-generation Irish. So, and then I saw this other man that I recognized as my grandfather, but I never knew him because he died before I was born. And he had a nice suit on. Uh, And so I saw all these, these beings there, also felt other beings there, other family members, other my father's family friends from uh, from, he was very close to the kids he grew up with uh, elementary school. But then I see this beam of light coming down from them and it's coming down and an angle that would connect them at the foot of his bed, right to his kind of heart space, crown space with that angle. And I'm, and I'm, so I get right away. I'm like, that light is going to be the stairway that my father goes up. I know that I can know that. And I said, why aren't you taking him? He's ready. He's laboring with his breath. Take, you know, and I'm actually a little bit like, hey, why aren't you taking him? They avert their vision and point me, kind of just up and over the center of my father. And the minute my energetic attention goes there, I feel in and right in my heart it just goes boom. It comes alive, and I'm like, and gets activated, and I go, that's the force, that's the conductor. I could feel that oh. presence <laughs> managing that space. And and managing the transition, I started weeping right then. I, so I that's my- like
1: uh, we we want to we want to take your dad, but this guy's in charge.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what they really said to me is, we're we're the welcoming party. We're here for we're here for your father. We're here for my son for my brother uh, when he gets here. But he's in charge, yeah. and it was a it was a he. It felt like a he in this case. They're not always they're different genders and what have you, but. When I felt that, my heart resonated. I mean, I started weeping right there. Oh, my gosh. The power of this spirit being was spectacular. I, I don't have the words for it, Suzanne. It's beyond anything that I felt in this realm. It's just like all the energy that's moving, all, the, all that he was managing to make this transition happen. And then a few moments later, um, he was gone. Unfortunately, I was interrupted, and I had to answer something in the human realm. And so
1: I I feel that it's important to share what you shared in the book, that your mom had a role in that.
2: Oh yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay, great. You're right. So my mother, uh, I announced that the family's here, everyone's here. And, and I actually even said, my grandfather came forward at this time and said to my, got, tried to get close to my mother and he was moving towards her. And, and then, and then he said, to her, which I translated, thank you for being such a, still still moving right now, such a wonderful wife to my son. And and she had never met him. So for him, he had, he had lived his life uh, in in the spirit realm, never having met my mother, who my mother and father had a beautiful 64-year relationship. So he was genuinely wanting to express that. But then he got kind of a little bit, um, Told to go back to his place by the uh, by the conductor. The conductor <laughs> oh said, "Not now, like hey, get back in your place." I mean, it was it was benevolent, but like I said, the conductor has this paradoxical role of being loving and kind and in charge and businesslike. It's a job that the conductor is doing. So, but I say to my mother, "Hey, I don't know what's going on here. The light is coming down. It seems like it's all ready to happen." You know, I don't know why he's not going. And my mother exclaims naturally, totally unfiltered response. He's not going because I'm holding him here. And, and she, and yeah. And then she, she exclaims, I mean, she says to, you know, in this really honest, humble voice, he can go now, Bob, you can go, go to your family. And, and she, you know, she says, thank you for loving me. So it's really powerful.
1: Yeah. And then he did.
2: And then moments later, he was gone. It was <laughs> just, that's just how it happened. And, you know, a really beautiful scene, but as you can tell, packed full of emotion. And from what, one of the reasons I love being with Death and Dying I know that sounds a bit strange but it's true is that oh. is that the soul the language of the soul is emotion. Oh yeah. And and that's and the gift to be at these tender moments is ju- is to feel all of this. So um So yeah, it's a gift to be with people when they're dying and especially when they're family members, you know, or people you're close to. But
1: well, we only have a minute and a half to go. I feel an important point and people listening are probably by now thinking, I want to have that experience with my loved ones. (laughs) And I believe one of the main points you make in your book is that we can't ensure it. We can't guarantee it. But those most often who do have them are those like everybody tuning in right now who are already open to it. Yes. What do people need to know with one minute to go, William?
2: Yeah. I mean, you said it, Suzanne, receptivity, acceptance that death is a natural part of process of your of anyone's process so when you're with loved ones or you know or when it's your time to go have these important conversations to say thank you for the life we spend together i'm so grateful for our time in this lifetime uh i forgive you you, I, you forgive me let's go through that make sure that's all taken care of and um i love that's you really I love Really big
1: point that say everything you need to say.
2: Yeah. Clear, clear the energetic channel. Cause if not, that's going to be a little bit of a weight that I think can get in the way. And, you know, just so you know, we do trainings on this because so many people want to know how to do this. Um, You know, so I invite people if they're interested to look us up, we have yeah we, we shared
1: crossings.com
2: shared, crossings.com shared yeah. crossings.com shared all right
1: and i just want to say anything anybody didn't get to say before anybody passed you can still say it and william i know we both know they still hear it thank you so much for being a guest on the show i hope everybody runs out and gets a copy of that heaven store you've done such a service for everybody with this book thank you
2: thank you suzanne
0: Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like Earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss an episode.